We continue the shear in Navi Jewish history. Tonight's shear is on a very controversial topic, and there are certain times when it is advisable for a person not to get involved in a controversy. Stay out of controversies. The Gemara itself advises a person to stay out of arguments. Keep on the side of peace. Other times when it is definitely wrong for a person not to become involved. For example, there is a very mocked controversy today between the Orthodox and Lahavdil, the Reform faction. The Jew is asked, which one do you side with? And he says, I don't want to get involved. That's an admission of guilt immediately. There's no things not getting involved in a controversy of that sort. A religious Jew is supposed to denounce anything that pertains to the reform movement, which coincides with, synonymous with, atheism. In this case, this controversial topic, the topic of David or Bathsheba, King David and Bathsheba, a very controversial topic, one that is discussed many places and in different forms, is a topic where every Jew should become involved and take sides with the contention of pure faith, because this story itself is actually a test of faith. Now, this story written in the Torah must be explained in all four forms that the Torah is studied in. It is called Pardes. Pardes stands for Pshat, Remez, Drush, and Sod. That means the simple translation of the story as it is written in the Torah itself, in the Navi, the Remez and Drush means the explanations, the deeper thoughts, the hints that are found hidden in the words, and the additional Drush of the Chachamim, the Rabbis of the Gemara, and then finally the Sod, the deep secrets that are found throughout the Torah in general, and especially in this case, the story which represents a yisod, a foundation of our faith. We will take this in order. We'll first take the story in its simplest form, try to translate it practically verbatim from the Tanakh, or what others would call the Bible. Story of David Melach. one night left his bed to go up to the roof of his palace to get some fresh air. Looking down, he could see a woman bathing. This woman was Bathsheba, who the Torah says was extremely good-looking. So, seeing this sight, there was a desire on his part to get to know her better. He sent messengers to find out about her, and they came back and informed him that she was Bathsheba, the daughter of Aliyam, the wife of Uriah. Her husband's name was Uriah. Again, King David sent messengers to have her brought to him. She came to him, and he stayed with her that night. He lived with her that night. The Torah stresses, though, that she was pure. She had just gone to the mikveh. There was no sin of Nida. After this took place, she returned to her home. Nothing more was said or done. A short time later, this woman became pregnant.
pregnant. She sent a message to notify King David of this. The simple words, her words were, I am pregnant. King David now sent a message to Yoav. Yoav was King David's commander-in-chief of the army, top general of his army, who was extremely powerful in battle and was always victorious. He possessed an unusual amount of courage and even a greater degree of loyalty to his king. Uh, king David sent a message to Yoav, his top general, stating, send me one of your soldiers whose name is Uriah. Yoav the general sent Uriah to King David immediately. Uriah came before King David and King David asked Uriah about just talking in a general manner, how are things going, how is Yoav, how are the people, how is the battle going. And then King David said to Uriah, without explaining why, he said to him, you've been in battle, you fought hard, you worked hard, you're tired, you deserve a rest. You've been away from home for a long time, go to your home and spend time there. Which means, in other words, spend time, live with your wife. The purpose here was obvious, seemed obvious. Live with your wife so that later, when she reports that she is pregnant, Uriah will suspect nothing. He will think that she is pregnant because of the fact that he had lived with her. This was a scheme, it seems, that King David had in hiding the fact that she became pregnant through King David. Uriah left King David's home, the palace, and King David sent with him a lot of food and drink to make him feel good and to desire after eating a lot, drinking a lot, he would have a greater desire for his wife. Despite this, Uriah did not return home. He slept outside of the king's palace together with the king's servants. He did not go home. This was reported to King David and King David called Uriah again and said to him, you just came from the road, from battle. Why didn't you go to your home, especially when I told you to? Uriah replied to King David, these were his words, The Oren Kodesh, the Holy Ark, the Jews are in tents at the place of battle. My master Yoav and the servants of the king are resting on the field. This is no luxury. I should return to my house to eat, to drink, to live with my wife by the life of the king. I vow that I will not do so. The king said to Uriah, fine, stay with me one more day. Tomorrow I will send you back to the field of battle. Uriah stayed there for one more day. Again, the intentions were to have him drink a lot, make him drunk, and thereby have him return to his home. Again, despite all this, Uriah remained with the servants of the king did not go to his home. Now there was no more, no longer an alternative. King David called Uriah in and said to him, I have a, a sealed message for you to bring to the general Yoav. In this message he wrote, the bearer of this message is upon my orders to be placed at the very front of the battle. And when you attack, see to it that he is in the front line and that he dies in this battle. When Yoav got this message, naturally, in loyalty to the king, he obeyed instantly. He placed Uriah 
at a spot in battle where he knew that even the strongest of men would fall. And so the next day, the Jews went out to battle, and some of the soldiers died. Among them was Uriah. Yeroth sent a messenger to King David, and he told the messenger, tell King David that we regret the loss of a number of Jews in this battle, but be sure to add that Uriah was one of the casualties, knowing that this would make King David feel better, since that was what he desired. The messenger came to King David and told him these words, only well, he started with the words, Uriah died as one of the soldiers. King David heard this, and he said to the messenger, go back to Yoav and console him. Tell him it is to be expected that even the victors have to suffer casualties in battle, but he should not become despondent, he should not lose hope. Continue the battle and you'll be completely victorious. So, the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah had died. She spent the prescribed period of mourning, the passing of her husband. And when this mourning period was over, King David sent for her, took her to his home, and she became his wife. And she gave birth to his son. This did not please Hashem. And so Hashem sent Nasan the prophet to King David. Nasan the prophet came to him and said, I have a problem. I have a question in law that must be resolved since you are the king and you are the Supreme Court. You are the chief justice in our time. I want you to rule in this case. Problem is that in a certain city, in our land, there live two men. One is very wealthy, the other is extremely poor. This wealthy man has sheep, cattle, a lot of riches. The poor man has nothing but a small lamb. One small lamb, which he has bought, and from which he derives his livelihood. This lamb is very precious to him, very dear to him. He considers this lamb as one of his family. This lamb eats from the bread that he eats, drinks from his cup, and lives in the same home that this poor man lives. This lamb is like a daughter to this poor man. One day, a visitor, a guest, came to the house of this wealthy man. This wealthy man was too miserly to take from his own cattle the slaughter of his sheep to prepare food for this guest. And so he rose up and took the lamb of this poor man and prepared this as a meal for the guest who had come to him. What crime is this? What measure of crime? And what penalty does this rich man deserve? King David became extremely angry, and he said to Nassim the prophet, This wealthy man deserves death, because stealing from a poor man is like taking his life. Whatever he has, that constitutes his entire life. Having taken away this lamb that he had, it was like taking the poor man's life. Therefore, the rich man is supposed to be put to death for this, and he's supposed to pay four times the amount that he has stolen, four times the value of this lamb. Thus the prophet said to King David, he roared out, You are that man. You are that rich man. Hashem said 
with his message to you. I have chosen you. I have anointed you as king of the Jews. I have saved you from the hand of Shaul the king. I have given you the house of your master. I have given you all the wealth of Israel. And if this is not enough, I gave you so much more, so much more in the form of wives. As a king, you are entitled legally to have 18 wives. Why have you shown such disrespect for the word of Hashem to do something that is so evil? Two, two items done. One, to kill Uriah by the sword of the enemy and to take his wife. Now because of this, you shall pay heavily. You're going to suffer from the sword from within. Your own family is going to turn against you. There will rise up among your family those who will persecute you, harass you, and you're going to see your wives taken from you. Because you have done this in a hidden manner, Hashem is going to publicize this for all Jews to know the crime you committed. King David replied immediately, I admit I have committed a sin before Hashem. And without a moment's hesitation, in fact, without even a new sentence in the Torah, in the very same sentence it says that the prophet Nasan said to King David, you admit your sin, you confess it, you regret it, Hashem has removed your sin, you shall not die for it. But this child born from this act must die. With this, thus when the prophet left the home of King David, and the child suddenly became very ill. King David began to pray to Daven very hard, very intensely for the health, the life of this child, and he began to fast. He sat on the ground, he refused to rise up, he refused to eat, he refused to lie on his bed. The elders of his home, his advisors, his family, tried to persuade him to eat something, and under no conditions would he consent to this. On the seventh day of the illness, the child passed away. The servants of King David were afraid to tell him that the child had died, because they said, if he suffered so much, the time the child was alive and ill, imagine what would happen to him if we told him the child had died. It might affect him so badly he might either die or he might even perhaps commit suicide at this news. King David saw the servants whispering to one another, so he asked them directly, Did the child die? They could not lie, and they said, Yes, the child is dead. King David rose from the ground. He went, washed himself. He changed his clothes. He went to the Mishkan, the temporary holy temple. There he bowed before Hashem. He said a short prayer. He returned home and asked his servants to give him a full meal to set the table for him. The servants were shocked. They said to him, what is the reason for this? When the child was alive, you fasted, you cried. Now that the child is dead, you rise up to eat as though nothing has happened. King David replied, when the child was alive, I fasted and I cried for him because I said, perhaps, who knows, perhaps Hashem might answer my prayers, remove the decree of death from that child, the child might live. Now that the child is dead, what good is my fasting? Can I retrieve that child? 
can I bring him back? He said these mortal, immortal words, I will one day go to him. He will not return to me. Then King David consoled his wife Bathsheba. Note the words. King David consoled Bathsheba, his wife. And after a while, she became pregnant. She gave birth to a son. He called this son Shlomo, which means that a symbol of peace in his time, and one whom Hashem loves very dearly. Hashem sent a message to Nassim the prophet, stating that the name of this child is Yedid Ko, which means the beloved one of Hashem. This is the name that Hashem has given to him, in addition to Shlomo. Later, Yoav went out to do battle with the country of Ammon, and the battle was a successful one, details of which we will have much later on. Up to this point is the story of King David and Bathsheba, as is written clearly in the Navi, in the Torah Shebik the written Torah. We've tried to give this story practically verbatim, adding nothing and subtracting nothing. However, we must now go on to the next step, a step higher than Pshat. In other words, to go to the deeper explanation by our sages, the rabbis of the Gemara, whose words are the words of Hashem. He is so the foundation of our faith is that the Torah is the word of Hashem. Both the Torah Shabiksav and the Torah Shabalpeh. Until now, it would seem, this is the controversial point we spoke about, it would seem to the ordinary person, to the layman reading this, that a serious crime or a number of serious crimes had been committed by King David, Chasvashon. Here we have a case of Bathsheba, seemingly, or as it states here, the wife of Uriah. What can be a greater crime than living with a married woman, the Iser Ashes Ish, the wife of Uriah Chiti? Secondly, to compound this felony, to have Uriah killed because he wanted Uriah's wife, he coveted the wife of a man, so he had him killed. That would be the second crime, seemingly. Third, even more so, what would hurt more, would seem to be the proof of those who contend these statements as fact, is the message sent by Hashem, Runasan the prophet, stating to King David, you have committed a crime that is so violent, equivalent to the wealthy man that took away the lamb of the poor man. Uh, I got, by the way, before you go further, explain a little deeper the point about uh, Nasan the prophet's message to King David. Well, Hashem HaKadosh says, Rabbi Nazal speaks about this at length in the Kote Maran, that a person should be very careful in judging a second Jew. If he is ever asked about a crime that a Jew committed, be very cautious and slow in condemning that person. Because in all probability, the reason the question was placed to you, that Jew in the first place, is because in heaven this Jew is supposed to be judged now, and in order to judge him properly, where he will not complain against the penalty or sentence, he is asked to judge himself. 
uh, he was told, you committed such and such a sin, what penalty do you deserve? He would say, nothing. I should be excused. I didn't really mean it. There's no penalty that I should receive for it. So the person could not be asked the question in such manner. What trick is used, or what scheme is used, to circumvent this from heaven? He is asked this question, not about himself, but about a second person, a second party or a third party. In this case, he would be more honest and deliver an opinion of what penalty that person deserves, not knowing that he is actually convicting himself. And therefore, Venezuela says a person should be very careful about speaking of someone else's crime, what penalty he deserves, because it could be himself that he is bringing this penalty and his suffering upon. This we learn from the case of King David. Thus, the prophet came to him in order to determine the proper penalty for the crime, he asked King David to judge about his own crime, his own alleged crime. Uh, if he would say to King David, you committed a crime, what do you deserve? He might have evaded the issue. But he said to him, there was someone else, a rich person who stole someone else's lamb, what does he deserve? This way, King David came out with a penalty where he could no longer deny that this penalty was just for himself, since he himself ruled that penalty. Now again, from this statement, a message by Hashem, through us and the prophet, to King David, we cannot deny then, it would seem we cannot deny that there must have been a very serious crime committed because of the fact that the message came from Hashem saying that he must pay a penalty for this type of sin. Now we come to the Gemara though, where we can understand this entire thing much more deeply and much more clearly. The Gemara sheds a great deal of light on this story. And again we state that in this controversy we must keep one point in mind. That point is that the entire story is truly a test or the test of a Jew's faith. Let's see what the Gemara says about the story. First we have the Gemara Shabbos, where the Gemara states that any person, anyone who says that King David committed a sin in this case is committing a very serious error, to say the least. An error on the part of a fool. It would take a fool to state that a sin of any kind was committed by King David. Gemara goes on to explain. We find a Pasuk in the Torah which says, that King David was clever, was perfect in all his ways, and Hashem was with him throughout his life. The Shekhinah, the spirit of Hashem, rested with him. Meaning, of course, the Gemara says that in all questions of law, he won out. The law was exactly as he stated. A rabbi, a dayon, a judge, is zecher is privileged to arrive at the correct law in a debate with other rabbis if the Shekhinah is with him. The spirit of Hashem rests with him. Now in this case, the Gemara says, if King David had committed so serious a sin or sins, how could the Shekhinah have rested with him? In the case of even the smallest sin, the Shekhinah departs from a Jew. Since the Shekhinah was with King David, this is definite proof that there was no sin committed. Now the Gemara says, if so, question, how can we say there was no sin committed? We see that he did take the wife of a man. He took a married woman 
live with her, isn't this a sin that merits a death penalty? The Gemara answers that she was not married to Uriah. Though the Navi says the wife of Uriah, very true. She had been the wife of Uriah, but now she was divorced. The rule was then, the law of the land was that anyone going out to battle, to war, called the battles of King David, was compelled to give his wife a divorce in advance, so that in case he died in battle, in case he was missing in battle, his wife did not remain in doubt for the rest of her life. She knew that if her husband did not return, she was free to remarry. There could be no problem of an aguna, the tragic circumstance of a woman whose husband does not return and remains bound to him because she was married, does not know if he is alive. Then they had this rule of a get, a divorce given to every soldier going out to battle. Uriah was a soldier in the army of King David, and therefore he had given his wife Bathsheba a divorce before he left for battle. Hence, the Gemara says, it is definite that there was no act done with an Aishas Ish, a married woman. Secondly, question about having Uriah killed. The second question, of course, is how about the fact that it seems King David had Uriah killed. To kill an innocent person, how can we justify that? And the Gemara answers, Uriah deserved a death penalty. He had committed two crimes for which he merited a death penalty. One crime was the fact that he said to King David, you recall we quoted before from the Navi, my master Yoav, to state in front of a king that one has a different master is considered a cardinal crime which deserves a death penalty. It's the greatest disrespect to a king. You call someone else your master. Secondly, open disobedience also deserves a death penalty. King David ordered Uriah to go home. He refused to obey that order. This merited a death penalty. Third, most important, King David did not kill Uriah himself. He did not put a finger on him. It is the right of a king. King has the privilege to send any soldier anywhere that he wishes. So whether it was Uriah or anyone else, King David was completely justified in sending him to the forefront of the battle. In any event, there was no crime whatsoever resembling murder there, chas v'sholem, and there was complete justification in the act of King David because Uriah merited the death penalty, in addition to which he did not even receive a death penalty. He was simply sent out to battle. This is what the Gemara Shabbos says. So we've already eliminated the two major crimes as non-existent, and therefore the Gemara says it is a serious error on the part of that fool who thinks or who, who accuses King David Chasvishalom of one or both of these serious crimes. Now the Gemara and Hedrin goes on, pursues this topic further. The Gemara takes this from an entirely different angle, a very interesting one. The Gemara says there was a conversation between King David and Hashem. King David spoke to Hashem and said, I would like to rise up to a much higher level. 
I would like to reach the level of the fathers of the Jews, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. In the Shemona Esrei, the Jews say, Baruch Atah Hashem, Elokeinu, 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 Abraham, Elokeinu, Yitzchak, Elokeinu, Yaakov. Hashem, the Hashem of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, the fathers of the Jews. I would like to have my name added there too. Elokeinu, David. What do I have to do in order to have my name added to this bracha? Why did King David ask for that? It wasn't a request at random. There was a reason for it. Because the fact is that the Merkava of Hashem, Kaviyachal, the throne of Hashem, the Zohar Kodesh says, consists of four pillars, four basic pillars. These are the four sephiros represented by Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and David Amelach. Now, since King David was part of the Merkava, Kaviyachal, and therefore he felt that he was justified in asking to have his name included when speaking about the three fathers of the Jews to have his name there too, added to the Shemona Esrei. In addition, the Zohar Kodesh says that the tribe of Yehuda was selected as the leading tribe of the Jews. Why Yehuda? Because the word Yehuda consists of the four letters of Hashem's name in order, yud K vav K, with one letter added. In the middle, the Dalad, standing for David HaMelech. And therefore, from the tribe of Yehuda comes forth the kings of the Jews, King David, who was part of Hashem's name. This was the reason for King David's request. Uh, Hashem's reply was, you want to be classified on the same level as the fathers of the Jews? Fine. But they had to earn this status. They earned it through being tested. I tested them, very severe tests, and they passed. Akeda, each one went through a lot of suffering for my sake. They passed these tests, and therefore they merited having Hashem's name placed upon them. King David said immediately, Hashem test me too. Hashem said to King David, I will test you also. But your test will be much simpler than theirs, because they were not forewarned before the test was given. You're being told in advance that the test is coming and what the test will consist of. That night, King David went out and he saw Bathsheba washing herself underneath a cover. He did not see her, she was covered. The Satan, the angel of evil, came out, flew overhead in the form of a bird, and King David shot an arrow at this bird. The bird evaded the arrow. The arrow hit the cover, removed it from Bathsheba. He saw Bathsheba, and he called, he summoned her to him, and that's how it happened. And, as the Gemara says, it seems that he failed the test. But the Gemara says that King David later again resumed his conversation with Hashem. And he said to Hashem, I committed a sin. But Hashem, you know the truth. You know you can read a person's mind and a person's heart. And you know the reason I failed this test was only I failed because I challenged Kaviyachal, I challenged Hashem. I said, test me, we'll see if I can withstand the test. How would it look if I would have passed the test? It would mean that I had Kaviyachal Chasashalom defeated Hashem in an argument. And therefore, as respect to Hashem, I declined 
and I allowed myself to fail this test. But Hashem, you know, I could easily have overcome the desire for this type of sin. Neymar says that Hashem replied, correct, it is true, that this test was a simple one for you to pass. King David said, if so, then I ask that let the sin be forgiven. Hashem said, granted. King David said, I ask further that this sin not be recorded as an evil one in the Torah. Hashem said, granted. The rabbis of the Gemara will speak about this not as a sin, not as a crime, but they will defend you. King David said, and I ask that this sin be erased from the Torah. Hashem said, this can never happen. The act must be written verbatim as we read it before in the Torah because once this became part of the Torah, you cannot erase it. You had one tiny letter in the Torah, the Yud, the Yud of Abraham's wife's name, Sarai. Her name was Sarai, it was changed to Sarah. That means the Yud was removed, it was now the letter Hey. The Yud came crying to Hashem and said, how can you erase me from the Torah? Am I not one of the letters of the Torah? And Hashem said to the Yud, I will console you. You will not be erased. In fact, you'll be promoted. Until now, you are the last letter, the end letter of the name of a female. You're going to be promoted to become the first letter of the name of a male. That's when Hashem had Moshe to change the name of Hosea to Yehoshua. Where did this Yud come from? He let it taken from Sarai. So Hashem said to King David, if it was impossible to erase one tiny letter Yud from the Torah, how can I erase a whole chapter? This I cannot grant you. King David said, in that case then, at least, you know how much suffering I go through now from my enemies. The enemies of King David who continually taunted him about this. Whenever he studied Torah, they would ask him, not relating to the topic he was teaching, they would say to him, King David, what is the rule about a man who commits a sin with a married woman? And King David would reply to them always, his sin is very serious. But he does not lose his Ganadin. He can still get to Ganadin. But he who embarrasses someone publicly, as you are doing, lose your Ganadin permanently. This taunting... This suffering I must go through with my enemies. I want my enemies to be told once and for all that there was no sin. And Hashem replied to King David, During your lifetime, this will not be done. But after you pass away, your request will be granted completely. And that's why the Gemara says, When Shlomo HaMelech built the base of Mikdash, and the all-important moment came to bring the Holy Ark into the Holy of Holies, the gates refused to open. And he said, Raise the gates, let Hashem enter, let the Holy Ark enter. And the gates refused to open at the words of King Solomon, until he said, David Avi. Remember the kindness, the chesed of King David, my father? Then, only then did the gates open up to show that the greatness of King David was recognized by Hashem. And so the faces of the enemies of King David turned red, white, knowing that they were wrong all along. This is the second statement in the Gemara to show that the act on the part of King David was not really a sin, 
as stated so by his conversation with Hashem. A third statement in the Gemara. We find the Gemara of Adazara continues further. Rabbi Shimon ben Yechoi Zal says that King David could not have committed this act in the first place. It was impossible. Because the Pasik says about King David, Belibi Cholol Bikirbi. My heart is like a vacuum. My heart is empty. Whereas the average person has in his heart a section. A quarter of his heart is filled with the Yitzhahara, with the evil inclination, evil desire, the Taiva. My heart is empty at that point. I have no Yitzhahara left. I've completely eradicated any evil desire from my heart. Uh, if his heart was pure of any type of taiva, Yitzhahara, how could he have failed his test? How could he have had a desire for any woman, especially an Ashish Ish, married woman? Therefore, King David could not have committed this crime at all, being a perfect tzaddik. Why then did this story take place? Yorah says, Shemi Choyzal says, story took place as a pre-planned incident, pre-planned by King David and Hashem. It was predetermined, decided by both, that this whole story should take place, be written in the Torah for a reason. It was worth it, King David said, to have his name besmirched in the eyes of ordinary laymen. But let these laymen know, all future generations, let every single Jew know, the greatest sinner among Jews, know that if he ever commits a serious crime, as serious as this, or worse, it does not mean the end of that Jew. That Jew should know that the gates of tshuva, of repentance, are open to him. Because if one as great as King David, so high, so mighty in purity, so holy in stature, can commit a crime of such intensity and still be forgiven after repenting, then certainly I, the smallest Jew, could surely receive forgiveness if I repent. This would strengthen every single Jew who might go astray, who might commit a sin, and the knowledge be fortified with that knowledge that he still could repent and still could purify himself. There's no such thing as giving up hope, Chas This was the true motive of King David in having this whole story take place. These are the words of Shemir Yechoyzal in the Gemara. However, Begashmi, as he said, physically this could not have happened because Libi hollow, my heart is a vacuum. Uh, from here, we go still one step further. Until now, we have had the testimony of the different rabbis of the Gemara as to the fact that no sin was committed by King David. We go a step higher now. 